Okay. So turn over there to Jude. What you'll find is, uh, this is verse 8 that's up here on the screen. But I'm going to kind of, this is a very short letter. So it's easy to, uh, to get us back in context by just reading the previous verses that we've already covered over the last several weeks. So I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. And uh, I'm going to read, oh, I'm going to read down through probably verse 16. All right? That's about halfway through the, this little letter. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to, con to contend for the faith that was, that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of, the, of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of, uh, coming judgment of the great day, or until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." All right, so I could continue, but we're, that, that gets you uh, into the flow of things. Um, when we hit verse 8 there, um, well, let me back up to 4. We've already seen a beginning of what these false teachers are doing. He said certain people have crept in, right? So they didn't make their intentions known. They snuck in, and that's a really, really... Uh, um, negative word in Greek. So this crept in, snuck in, unnoticed. Um, so these are people that just started going to church, but uh, they are ungodly. That means that they are um, irreverent. Um, they're, they're not uh, real worshipers of the Lord Jesus, and they pervert God's grace. So God gives us this freedom but it's easy to bend that freedom around just to serve our own desires. And that's what they did. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And then ultimately, the most uh, condemning statement about them is they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about the fact that that could be that they were denying him by perverting the gospel, or they might have been outright denying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and just seeing him as a good teacher or uh, whatever their perspective was, we don't have in this. Now we go to verse 8 and we see more about them. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, so they don't rely on the word of God, they rely on their dreams. They defile the flesh, okay? So we, our flesh is, is it's not your skin, it's your natural self. It's you without God, all right? And even in a fallen state, even without God, there is a way that things are supposed to be. There's a way we're supposed to live our lives. And we see our country spinning absolutely out of control, particularly uh, with the, uh, the, the many uh, things that are being done as a result of advocacy 
uh, for the LGBTQ community. Um, there's just some crazy things that are being done, even uh, in teaching children. And this is taking what is natural and turning it around and twisting it and changing it and altering it. I just got finished uh, reading a book uh, by Douglas Murray called The Madness of Crowds, and I can highly recommend it. But it clearly explains what is going on and what has been really going on since, I would say, earlier than this, but strongly since the second term of the Obama administration um, when the Obergefell decision went through, same-sex marriage went through. There's just a whole lot of things that are going on that on the surface appear to be standing for the rights of people who are um, uh, being served unjustly. They're, they're being given injustice. But what ends up happening is that this is turned around and it is abused and it causes other people to lose their rights and it causes us to lose our bearings in our culture. So, um, we definitely see these folks, they're defiling the flesh, and this is they reject authority. Well, that's definitely what's happening in our culture as well, right? Um, people have reasons for rejecting authority. Well, you know, uh, certain police officers have uh, stepped outside of their authority and have even been involved in unjust killings of other people. But to expand that out and try to make it seem as though all police officers are guilty of these same crimes... Um, the situation with George Floyd, uh, that fellow, the, the police officer may or may not have been a racist. What he did was evil and what he did was wrong, but it still hasn't been proven that, that was the result of his racism. He worked with George Floyd for 10 years at a nightclub, both of them at night. George Floyd worked inside and this fellow was one of the police officers that was hired outside and they were at it. They disagreed in a lot of cases. This appears to me just to be, uh, you know, somebody who is using their authority and abusing their authority over someone and having absolutely no mercy on that person and who is certainly responsible for the fellow's death. But does it mean all police officers are evil? All police officers are racist? We need to defund the police? This is the extreme to which people go and they reject authority, right? So, you know, I mentioned this two Sundays ago, but um, there are continual continuous ongoing riots um, in Portland, Oregon. In fact, I saw a video. I try to stay away from these videos, but uh, I get news videos that get pushed uh, my direction on YouTube because I've watched a number of commentators like Ben Shapiro. And uh, there were a group of police officers that tried to serve an eviction notice to someone in an apartment complex in Portland who were literally chased down the streets by protesters. What are the police good for if you can't even stand against people that are lawless? That's what we're talking about here, rejecting authority. That's what these people were doing. They defile the flesh. They twist the, the, the natural human nature to say, you know, I can be whatever gender that I want to be, right? You know, uh, it's, it's binary. I, you know, I just don't know and, and all these sorts of things that twist the flesh. Reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. This is those that would speak against God, that would speak against, uh, you know, angels or the existence of angels and so forth, right? Um, so I, I made a little list of uh, the things that these false teachers are guilty of from verse 4 and verse 8. Previously, I included verse 8 alongside verse 4 because both verses listed the sins of the false teacher, and there's more that are listed as we go along in the letter. But first of all, they're ungod ungodly. That means they're irreverent or unholy. They pervert God's grace. That means they're licentious, right? They give license to whatever they want to do. They don't have uh, any sense of uh, a set of rules other than what they decide they want to do, right? Or we could say they're antinomians. That means they're against the law. They don't believe that there is a law that is over them. Ten Commandments, what Ten Commandments? No, there's no moral law. There's just what you think is right, and you do that for you. That's what these folks were doing. Sensuality, this is the Greek word aselgia. It means unrestrained indulgence in immorality, largely of a sexual nature. They deny Christ, mentioned that very clearly. They rely on their own dreams instead of the word of God. 
They defile the flesh. This is impurity, sexual immorality, and perversion. And they blaspheme the glorious ones. This is irreverent, speaking against God and the angels, perhaps even speaking against the biblical Jesus, right? If they were uh, Gnostics, then they would definitely have a different view of God and a different view of Jesus. And it's a good bet that they are. So let's get into this controversial verse here, all right? Verse nine, when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And so the first time I read that, I went, huh? I've read the Bible a lot, many, 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 many times. You ain't ever gonna find that story. Where does that come from? Well, I'm about to tell you. <laughs> it is the first of two references to extra biblical writings. Um, there, there, are, there are a number of writings that are in the middle of, for instance, the Catholic Bible that were not accepted as uh, inspired by most of the Jewish people but they were later included in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the uh, Old Testament. And many Christians, early Christians, read those, uh, those books. And th that, those middle books between the Old Testament and the New Testament are collectively known as the Apocrypha. But they're not contained in the oldest Jewish Bible. And Christians who are more conservative uh, do not read them as inspired works. However, this story is not found in there either. Then there are a group of writings that are collectively uh, referred to as the pseudepigrapha. Strange, right? Okay. Pseudographe. That means that they are pseudonyms. They are not they're named by an apostle. Supposedly an apostle wrote this. So a good example is the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas was not written by Thomas and it's not a gospel. It's a Gnostic writing that uses Thomas's name as a way to gain a hearing, to gain credibility, right? Um, but it's very old. It's probably third century, which is uh, far more recent than the, uh, the writings that we uh, have in the New Testament, but nonetheless, it's very old. There was a collection of Gnostic documents that were discovered in Nag Hammadi, Egypt in the 40s that also date around the third to fourth century. They're also Gnostic writings, right? Now, I'm not gonna go into in depth about Gnosticism, except to say it is more a philosophy that is, was adhered to religiously by people in largely the second and third centuries. And it was a challenge to Christianity because it took a lot of the key figures, especially Jesus in Christianity, and used those as a way to advance its ideas, right? Gnosticism is really a form of Neoplatonism, Plato. Remember Plato? You've heard of his, his name, right? Plato, the philosopher, the fourth century BC philosopher. Plato was a dualist. That meant that he believed very strongly that reality was comprised of the material world and what you could call the spiritual world, right? Um, what would be matter and what would be um, immaterial, right? Um, and so Neoplatonists saw the material world as essentially evil and only the, the, the mental world, right? right? The, the, the world of, 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 our, of our brain or, or our mind, if you will, um, was, was going to last. And so the way they handled this was to downgrade and treat the material world uh, as though it were uh, to be avoided, some of them, okay? They were uh, ascetics. They would treat their body harshly. They would try to stay away from all fleshly indulgences. In other words, these would be the people that didn't drink, they didn't smoke, they didn't do anything, anything, anything. But believe it or not, there were also Neoplatonists and Gnostics who said, it doesn't matter what you do with the body. It's just the body and it's just gonna die. So eat, drink, and be merry. 
It doesn't matter. That's the, the Gnostics, if these are Gnostics that Jude is writing to and Second Peter's writing to, that's their perspective. Just go hog wild. Do whatever you want to do, right? Do whatever you want to do with your physical body. It simply does not matter, okay? Um, so, uh, I've given you an idea of, of these writings, okay? This comes out of a pseudepigraphal writing called the Testament of Moses. Now, to my knowledge, that is not a Gnostic work, but it is a pseudepigraphal writing because it, although it purports to be a Testament of Moses, it was written much, much later than anyone who would be able to give a testament of Moses would be capable of writing. But nonetheless, it was one of the books that these early Christians um, were reading. So here's the question, and it's a valid question. Does that mean we should be reading this book alongside Scripture? Because we have Jude here who seems to be referring to it in the same flow as he refers to all of these biblical writings. All right. Um, probably most, if not all of you, uh, listened to the message that I preached last Sunday. I brought in a reference to Iron Man. And I talked about Iron Man taking the resources that he had available to him and constructing that suit so that he could get out of his difficult situation. And I was using that as an illustration to say that God has given you the resources that you need to get out of whatever difficult situation that you are in. He's given you the intellect. He's given you the resources. It may not seem like it, but he's given you the resources to construct a way to get out of that situation. Does that mean I believe Iron Man really exists? No, I'm using it as an illustration because it's a good story. It's an interesting story, all right? So I think a case could be made that that's exactly what Jude is doing here. But I'm gonna go a step further. I'm gonna read you the account from this extra biblical work, all right? This is from the Testament of Moses, and uh, it was, oh, I won't go into who translated it. This is involved. Uh, suffice it to say, um, this is a very, very scholarly individual that translated this. Here it is. Of the death of Moses. And Moses said to Jesus, the son of Nave, let us go up into the mountain. And when they had gone up, Moses saw the land of promise. And we do see that Jesus, uh, Jesus, that Moses went up on the uh, out in Mount Pigsa and he saw the, mount, the, the land of promise before he died. That's in the Old Testament. When they had gone up, Moses saw the land of promise and he said to Jesus, go down to the people and tell them that Moses is dead. And Jesus went down to the people. So this isn't Jesus Christ. This is someone else named Jesus. And Jesus went down to the people, but Moses came to the end of his life. And Samuel tried to bring his body down to the people so that they might make him or make it a god, little g. But Michael, the chief captain, this is the archangel, by the command of God came to take him and remove him, and Samuel resisted him, and they fought. So the chief captain was angry and rebuked him, saying, May the Lord rebuke you, devil. And so the adversary was defeated and took flight. But the archangel Michael removed the body of Moses to the place where he was commanded by Christ our God, and no one saw the burial place of Moses. So what this does is it takes facts from the Old Testament that Moses went up on Mount Pixah and he saw the land of promise, that nobody knew where he was buried, and the reason that they didn't know where he was buried was precisely so that they would not turn him into a god. And this is some writer, sometime later, that made up a story about this, okay? And Jude read this story, and apparently uh, the folks that he was writing to were familiar with this story because he doesn't go into detail, he just simply mentions. Um, he speaks of the archangel Michael. We do know that there is uh, an angel named Michael from the Old Testament. Um, this character named Samuel apparently is identified with Satan, and later in this, uh, this pseudepigraphal text, 
it says, he says, may the Lord rebuke you devil. So he calls this character named Samuel devil. And then he calls him the adversary. That's what Satan means, by the way. It means adversary. All right. So the point that Jude is trying to make from the story is that even the archangel Michael didn't dispute with the devil, didn't dispute with Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. There's a level of respect that's there. Now, there are certain communities of faith that traffic a lot in speaking to the devil and, you know, rebuking the devil and so forth, okay? And saying, I rebuke you, Satan. But it's always, I rebuke you, Satan, what? In the name of Jesus. Because you don't have the power to rebuke Satan. You're just a person. You're just a human. I'm just a human, right? This is this very, very powerful fallen and evil being, right? The way Jude uh, says that that should be done is the Lord rebuke you. That's really, if I say I rebuke you in the name of Jesus, that is saying the Lord rebuke you through me but I'm relying on the Lord Jesus. So there's this story, and this is, uh, this is an event. This is a story that's history um, in the book of Acts. This is something that happened uh, in or around Ephesus when Paul was doing his ministry there. Um, Paul was casting out a lot of demons, right? What are demons? They're fallen angels, right? Daimon just means a demigod, right? So demon is just a name for a fallen angel. The scripture says that when Satan rebelled against God and he was cast out of heaven, a third of the angels of heaven followed him. Those are the demons, all right? Many of those are imprisoned in this abyss and they will be turned loose at the end of time for this giant battle and tormenting of humans and all sorts of things. But there are certainly demons that are around uh, today and uh, whether the, the devil himself is, uh, is actually around today or not is a matter of dispute. Um, but the point is that um, we still need to resist the devil, right? That's what, in fact in First Peter, it says, resist the devil and he will flee, right? Humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God, resist the devil and he will flee. But you resist in the name of Jesus. So this story, Paul has the authority of Jesus and the demons leave. We see that... Uh, we see that happen a good many times in the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus, every time Jesus comes into the presence of someone who is inspired by, demonized, even possessed by a demon, the demon always reacts and is, reacts in fear. And Jesus always resists the demon and casts it out and it goes because he's Jesus. I'm not, you're not. Without Jesus, you can't resist the devil and he will not flee, okay? I have to be possessed by this almighty power. The spirit of God has to be in me and I have to resist with Christ's authority, not my own authority, okay? So I'm not gonna, you know, be like two UFC fighters are like, ah, he's nothing, he's nothing, man. Wait till we get in the ring, man. I'm gonna, yeah, it's gonna be nothing, you know, or WWE wrestlers or something like that, all right? The way some of these folks in, you know, different charismatic and Pentecostal communities talk, it's almost like, you know, yeah, I just beat the devil down myself. You know, no, you're not. So in the story that I'm referring to in, uh, in Acts about uh, these folks in Ephesus, it talks about seven sons of one man named Siva or Skiva who were exorcists. They were Jewish exorcists, which means that they went around trying to cast demons out of people. And they encountered a man who was demon-possessed, and they said, we rebuke you in the name of the Jesus Paul preaches. Now, this must have been creepy. I won't make a creepy voice. I've done it before. When I was dealing with youth, I used to make a creepy voice when I told this story. Um, but the demon spoke through the man and said, I know Jesus, and I've heard about Paul, but who are you? One guy, it says, beat all seven brothers until they were naked and bleeding and they ran out of the house. 
You and I don't come up against Satan in our own strength. That's nonsense. So folks that would try to disparage the demonic by saying, oh, that's just stupid, that's superstitious, they don't exist, and so forth, that's just foolish. That's See, there's respect that is reverence for. That's the respect I have for God. But there's respect that says, no, I know these beings exist and they have power. And I'm not going to do anything except through the power, the super imposed power of Christ working through me, right? Christ's power is far greater. And I'm going to move in his power. I'm not going to try to do this myself. So that's what's behind this, um, the Lord rebuke you. And, you know, I've told kids this. I'll tell you this. You're not a kid, but, you know, you may encounter times when you uh, are confronted with something that's mighty awful scary, maybe kind of evil. Maybe you really do suspect that it could be demonic. Then you resist in the name of Jesus, right? You can use that big fancy Bible word rebuke if you want to. Rebuke just means I resist you. I cast you out. I push you away in the name of Jesus. But see, you've got to have Jesus in you, or you can't do anything in the name of Jesus. But that's the same thing that corresponds to saying the Lord rebuke you, or just pray. Lord Jesus, drive this evil out of this room right now. Drive this darkness, this evil, this despair out of my mind and out of my heart right now. I'm telling you, the name of Jesus is powerful. And the devil will flee. And that's the truth, okay? Uh, So the false teachers speak against spiritual beings and divine authority. Um, um, It says they blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So they speak against spiritual beings, angelic beings, demons and angels. They speak against divine authority. And that is what is referred to as all that they do not understand. They don't even understand what they're speaking against. And we see this a lot, okay? It reminds me of those today who seek to make a mockery of anything supernatural. I don't know if you have read anything by uh, those who are atheists or neo-atheists referring to God as the flying spaghetti monster. Have you heard these disparaging things, right? This is just a way of, of mocking God and you know, saying he's just, a, he's just a fairy tale. They refer to the Bible as uh, some old book or as an old storybook. Uh, they consider the talk of angels and demons ridiculous along the lines of believing in fairies and monsters, right? Why do these people do this? See, I've, I've had debates with folks like this before, and... Uh, It can be respectful or it can be disrespectful. When it's respectful, it's often that somebody is really, they're working through things intellectually and you can give them reasons for the existence of God and there are reasons for the existence of God. There's evidence for the existence of God and they can consider that, but they're still gonna have to step out in faith, okay? So I can recommend... uh, books by a fellow named William Lane Craig. And if you don't like to read books, uh, watch his videos. He has a million videos on YouTube. William Lane Craig, brilliant guy. He's debated virtually every atheist you can think of, except Richard Dawkins, who's scared to debate him. Won't debate him, okay? But he's debated Sam Harris. He's a, you name him, all right? He's debated Bart Ehrman, the guy that's written all these books against the Bible and so forth. Um, and he provides evidence. And so... All the way up through the early part of 2016, uh, I had a friend online who was a friend long before uh, either one of us got on Facebook um, that I knew through some members of our church. They no longer go here, but this was uh, the the lady's uh, adopted father. And uh, I used to go over to their house, um, either the, the family that went to our church or her father's house, sometimes Thanksgiving, sometimes Christmas, and have dinner. He was a great cook, right? But he is a, uh, oh, he may be retired now. 
He's a civil rights lawyer. He's from the East Coast. He's Jewish and he's an atheist. So you can well imagine we had some very interesting conversations, but they were always respectful conversations. Come to 2015-16 and we're online and he just starts becoming very, very disrespectful. So I would debate him not because I thought it was going to you know, bring him over to quote-unquote my side, but because I knew there were other people that were reading and that were watching this. Okay, um, You can have healthy debates with people and knowing what the, the field of, of defending your faith is called apologetics, knowing apologetics is good for that purpose. But there are people that are not, they're not atheists, they're anti-theists. Do you understand what I'm saying here? An atheist is someone who says, I just don't believe in God. An anti-theist is, no, God is stupid. That's, you're just dumb. You just, you're foolish. You're a moron. And they've got to, they've got to defeat you. They've got to destroy you. They've got to put you down. They've got to show you that you are wrong and they are, that's an anti-theist. If I was an atheist, heaven forbid, but if I was an atheist, I could be friends with Christians. I just pretty much, you know, just laugh and let them do their thing. There's a guy named Christopher Hitchens. Uh, he passed away of throat cancer uh, several years back. But uh, he wrote a book that was very popular for a period of time called God is Not Great. And uh, he was a British journalist, outspoken atheist. And he debated a number of people. In fact, he debated William Lane Craig. Um, and uh, he was very, very acerbic, very witty, uh, not one of these dry and whiny types of... Bart Ehrman, I can't stand to listen to the guy talk. But I'm that way with a lot of people. <laughs> I, I, I can't listen to President Trump talk for more than five minutes. And Joe Biden, oh my word, he was on a tirade today. I have, I have one of these Amazon devices that I got really, really cheap. It's the Amazon uh, show whatever, five or something like that. And it said, try saying, Alexa, what's up? So I was like, oh, I wonder what it's going to do. So I said, Alexa, what's up? Reuters news came up. And it was just like, oh, this news, da, 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 da. And then Joe Biden started talking. I was like, oh my gosh. So I said, Alexa, go home. She went home, but it was still, the audio was still on. I said, Alexa, turn this off. Ah, I cannot, no, I can't stand it. But see, Hitchens, although he would be someone that I would disagree with, was engaging. He was interesting. He was entertaining. And that's why a lot of people that were atheists like to listen to the guy. You want to hear something interesting? As, as atheistic as he was, he had a number of people that befriended him that were Christians. In fact, the last six months before he died, he was on a road trip with a Christian pastor all across the United States. And this Christian pastor wrote a book about it. So it didn't win him over, but I mean, obviously that's what the, the if I was an atheist, I'd be that kind of an atheist, all right? Um, although he was pretty much an anti-theist with this book, God is Not Great. Um, but nonetheless, what I'm trying to get at is um, there are people who are atheists because they have in, genuine intellectual arguments and disagreements and they want to work through some things, Okay. But the scripture reveals the motive of many atheists. It says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile. In other words, it is this corruption and these vile deeds that cause them not to want to have anyone tell them that what they're doing is wrong. They don't want anyone to have authority over them they want to be in authority. And, and virtually any atheist would tell you that. That's right. I don't want anyone to have any authority over me. I call the shots in my life. Okay? And so, but see, that doesn't alter whether God exists. I don't want to believe in God. That doesn't make God not exist. I don't want anyone in authority over me. That doesn't mean there's no authority. Do you understand what I'm trying to say here? So if my desire, my overwhelming desire not to have anybody telling me what to do or my overwhelming desire to just do whatever I please causes me to be an atheist, then that's foolish. I'm just saying, oh, there is no God. That way I can just do whatever I want, right? 
Um, so such people, whether the proto-Gnostics, and that, that's what these folks would be, uh, proto meaning early Gnostics, not full-fledged Gnostics of the second century. Um, these folks want to pursue their own designs and desires rather than be subject to God's law, which the atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche called slavery morality. That's what Nietzsche called Judeo-Christian morality. He called it slave morality. So you understand the perspective. So what do they put in place of God's law? Well, their own instinctive desires. And such instincts will destroy them sooner or later. That is their, quote unquote, sexual orientation, sensual pursuits, worldly wisdom about manipulating people uh, or attaining political power or making money. It says these people blaspheme all they don't understand, that's spiritual authority, and they are destroyed by all they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So what they do understand instinctively in their gut, that's what's destroying them, okay? And then he hits them with this. This is verse 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Wow, one sentence three major biblical stories and references. And I'm going to have time to do this first, and that's going to be it. Because although that's one verse, those are three major stories. All right, let's start. The way of Cain. What does that mean? Remember, the, remember Cain? Cain and Abel? Right? Adam and Eve, the first two sons were Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother, Abel. There's the first murder in history. What was that murder over? What was, why did he do it? His jealousy. Yeah, over that sacrifice. Because God looked with approval on Abel's sacrifice. But he did not look with approval on Cain's sacrifice. Let's look at uh, a part of that text. This is from Genesis 4. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Just some. He just brought him some. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And God warns Cain. And Cain goes and kills his brother anyway. This is over jealousy. Cain brought an offering. Okay, so we preachers, we don't judge your offering. Okay, I don't even look at what people give. You give your offering. Do what the Lord leads you to give. You do what you need to do, all right? But God looks at your offering because he looks at your heart. And so it's interesting. It doesn't say God rebuked Cain at this point. It's just he didn't have any regard, right? He didn't pay attention to it. It was just an offering. But the difference was Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. In other words, he brought the best. We used to have a man that went to our church, and uh, he got married, and uh, I think she pretty much wanted to go somewhere else, and so he eventually went somewhere else, and I don't know where they're going now. I think they're going to a Baptist church up in Saxe or Wiley or something like that now. But he went here for years and years, and uh, he used to— uh, be the guy that did what Craig does up here when I have somebody uh, take up the offering and pray before the offering. And one of the things he used to say all the time is when he was younger and he would give his offering and he would give cash, he always wanted to give the best to the Lord. So that meant he would give the first of his income, but he also, he, he went right down to, he wanted the, the, the bills that he put in the offering plate to be really, really nice. He wanted it to be all smooth and flat and nice. I'm like, that's a little further than I would go. I think money's money. But anyway, <laughs> the point is, it's, it's what's in your heart, right? It's, you know, are you just throwing God a tip? Or are you giving him your first and your best? And this isn't just about your money. This is about your time. This is about your talent, right? This is about your life. So this is why every morning when I get up, other than coffee, the first thing that I do is read my word. I do go and make coffee pretty much right away because otherwise I might not be awake to read the word, right? 
And I know I should be more spiritual than that, but nonetheless, I do go in and I get the coffee making. And then I go into this this computer now, uh, the computer I was using previously, uh, I've got up there running the, the church now. This I can bring down here and not worry about the other laptop that didn't work properly and all this other dream. But I, I just... I have three different lectionaries that I use. There's a Lutheran lectionary, there's an Episcopal lectionary, and there's a Catholic lectionary. I know, it sounds like I'm all high church, right? But they're just presenting verses of Scripture, passages of Scripture, right, that have been laid out. And for all of the the, the weaknesses that the high church has, if you go to church regularly at one of these types of churches and you pay attention, you're going to read through the whole Bible every year. You're going to hear all of these readings, now, it might sound like chanting, and it might not sound very engaging, and, you know, uh, there might be all sorts of other things that uh, would be uh, negatives, but on the whole, uh, these lectionaries were written a long time ago before all these churches became very liberal, and uh, they go through the entire scripture. I get a lot out of them, but that's what I want to do because I want that to be the first thing that happens, and there are times when that's not. And there are other things that get in the way. And, you know, I have to push those things out of the way. But nonetheless, what I'm trying to say is, I'm not trying to say, hey, look, I'm perfect. I'm wonderful or something. I'm just trying to lay that example down so that you don't think that I'm just talking about money here. This is about God looking at your life and whether you give your first and your best to him or do you keep the best for yourself, okay? So there's nothing here that even says that Cain kept the best for himself. He just didn't have the same degree of, of um, I don't know, desire to give something to God as his brother had. He just gave some. Here, yeah, I know I'm supposed to give this. So, And, and you know, if, if, if your offering is just an obligation, then, yeah, there's going to be a degree of blessing that's there, but is the Lord going to have the kind of regard that he's going to have when that is not just an obligation or a duty, but that is a desire. That is an act of worship, right? And you, you know, you got to do that how you do that. We still pass the offering back so people can give actually in the worship service. Um, but, you know, however you construct your day and your time and your money and all of that, give God the first and the best. But this uh, was over jealousy, okay? It's a monstrous thing, and it may result in anger, and in this case, even murder. Um, Jesus was murdered by the religious leaders of his day because of their jealousy over his power and popularity. So, perhaps Jude is showing us that this is the motive behind the blasphemy of these false teachers. They're blaspheming spiritual authority because they're jealous of spiritual authority. They want that spiritual authority, okay? Um, this is they abandon themselves for the sake of Balaam's error. All right. So from Numbers 22, Balaam was a, a well-respected prophet who was hired by Balak, who is the king of Moab, to curse the Israelites. Now, this was early on while the Israelites were still in the wilderness before they had gotten to the edge of the promised land, much less uh, taken the promised land. Um, well, what happened was, um, there's this long ramp up to Balaam even going. At first, uh, different waves of these officials, more and more important officials with bigger and brighter gifts come to Balaam and say, come to Balaam, come to King Balaam. He's got a job for you. Come, come, come. And the Lord keeps telling him no, so he keeps turning them down. But we know something's up with, with Balaam's heart, right? Because eventually the Lord says, go, but only do what I tell you to do right? So on his way, while he's going, he's riding his donkey and he's following these officials to King uh, Balak to curse Israel. Now he hasn't said he's going to curse Israel. He said, I can only do what the Lord tells me to do, but he's going with them. But he's going for what? A big reward. Now he ends up doing exactly what he said he gets up on the top of a mountain and he keeps looking at the, uh, he's up on the top of this mountain with the king and he's looking at Israel all spread out below the mountain. And he's supposed to curse them, but he blesses them three different times, right? So he curses, he blesses them once and then Balak says, what are you doing? And he takes him, he says, here, here, look at him from this perspective over here, right? So Balaam goes over to this side of the mountain and looks at this part of Israel. 
and he blesses them again. So Balak says, I, you, what do you do over here? Over here, look at, look at him over here. Look at him over here, okay? And he blesses them again. And so Balak is so mad at this point, he said, I brought you here to curse these people and you've blessed them these three times. And uh, Balaam says, I can only do what the Lord has told me to do, right? Um, so even after that, there was a four, he blessed them a fourth time. However, that sounds like he's doing what God told him to do. But we don't know what his motive is, right? There had to have been something wrong because after God told him to go, before he blessed them all those times, after God told him, go ahead and go, he's riding his donkey. And this is this famous story where Balaam's donkey spoke, all right? Here's a little bit of it here. This is from Numbers 22, 27 through 28. This is while Balaam is riding his donkey, following these officials of King Balak, right? And an angel of the Lord appears in the pathway on a number of times, and the donkey turns aside. And at one point, it's right next to a wall, and he crushes uh, Balaam's foot, all right? So Balaam is livid. He's, he's angry at this donkey because he thinks this donkey's crazy. And then finally, the donkey just sits down. Here it is, Numbers 22, 27, 28. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. <laughs> this is so awesome. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? <laughs> now, I would be freaking out if my donkey talked. And Balaam answers back. And see, if I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you. <laughs> then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Notice, God is concerned about how you treat your animals. Mm-hmm. Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. Did you hear that? God told him he could go, but something's wrong in his heart. So the angel's stopping him. You can go, but only if you do exactly what I tell you to do. But see, we can go and we can do what God has told us to do, but for the wrong reason and start doing it the wrong way. His path was reckless. It would seem there was a shifting motive in Balaam and God sought to stop the prophet when he knew an impure motive was there. It would appear that the wrong motive in Balaam's heart won out in the end, even after he obediently blessed Israel. Balaam told Balak how to cause Israel to sin. So he's being sent away. King Balak's mad at him because he has not cursed Israel. He's blessed them instead. But we find out later in Numbers that Balaam told Balak that the way that he could get God to curse Israel, or at least get God's wrath to be poured out on Israel, was to trip them up with Balak's own God, the Baal of Peor. Now, I know these names all sound alike to you. Balaam, Balak, Baal, right? Baal was the God that continuously tripped the Israelites up even after they took the land. I call Baal the God of sex and success. The way they worshiped this God was to have intercourse with cult prostitutes. These people, it says, bound themselves to the Baal of Peor, which means that they were all involved with these cult prostitutes, and God did get very angry at them, right? Listen to what happened, and this is how we know this, okay? Um... Oh, I didn't write it down. Uh, we find this in Numbers 31, 8, and 16 that uh, the Israelites ended up killing Balaam in a battle. So he had led them into uh, this. Uh, he had essentially, Jesus said uh, that their stumbling blocks will come, but woe to the person through whom they come, Right? And so Balaam became the reason that the stumbling block happened and Israel ended up uh, getting revenge and killing him. In fact, in Joshua 13.22, we, we find out that Balaam also practiced divination, okay? 
little application. There are preachers and teachers today who may speak the truth. They may be preaching the gospel, but their motivation is money, fame, and power. So be careful who you subject yourself to. False motive defiles even good teaching. Hold to the truth without being loyal to a greedy messenger. It says they perished in Korah's rebellion, all right? Korah led a rebellion against Moses. Now, this is in Numbers 16. And the motive is jealousy once again. Moses was not a self-appointed prophet or leader. In fact, he was a reluctant and hesitant and even fearful candidate whom God chose and prepared. Korah and 250 other leaders that he got to follow him was a leader among the people, but not one whom God has chosen or appointed. He wanted to usurp Moses's genuine authority. Listen to this from Numbers 16, 1 through 4. Now, Korah, the son of, son of, son of, son of, tells all the people that he was sons of, um, took men and they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and they said to them, you have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, even every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Now, Moses could have just gotten really, really angry. What do you think Moses did? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he cries out to the Lord, and he said, I didn't do anything to these people. Right? Moses is like, I didn't even want this job, Lord. And now they think I've done them wrong? Well, presumably the false teachers Jude writes about are doing precisely this against God's chosen apostles and the pastors and teachers that have been appointed over those congregations. And their end will be the same as those who perished in Korah's rebellion. Listen to what happened. This is what happened to Korah and the 250 men that followed him that rebelled against God's anointed men. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them with all that belongs to them, then they go down alive into Sheol. Sheol is the realm of the dead, the grave. Then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he finished speaking all these words, the ground under them, that is the ground under Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and the 250 men, split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. Whoa. Beware of putting out your hand against God's anointed. The Lord Almighty watches over his own. So that's what we are dealing with with these folks, uh, these teachers. I've come to the conclusion of this evening because I don't want to move on to these next verses. Um, so uh, start reading verse 12 to the end of the, uh, of the chapter uh, for next week and uh, continue to look at what these folks are doing. All right? Cool. God bless you guys.